for that. So thankful that we serve a risen Savior. Thankful we've got some good young people. This cord is all around me, and I'm going to die. Okay, there we go. All right, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter number 1. If you'll turn to Ecclesiastes, chapter number 1 tonight, we're going to begin a new series. And I'll talk about it a little bit and kind of lay the groundwork tonight. But we're starting a new series that I've entitled, Meaningless. And we're going to do a study through the book of Ecclesiastes. And tonight we're going to start just in the very, very beginning of Ecclesiastes, just the first three verses. And then we'll also spend some time in some other scriptures. And uh, we'll be in uh, 1 Kings and we'll also be a little bit in Deuteronomy. And so uh, if you'll look at first, uh, excuse me, Ecclesiastes chapter number 1, and we'll read very familiar, very, very familiar verses here, okay? How many of you just before, just glanced at it and you've ever read this before? You're familiar with the beginning. All right, here, let's read it together. In verse number one, it says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Then he says something we've heard many times before, quoted even in the secular realm. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit hath the man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? Tonight, for just a few moments in this introductory message, in this series again, which we've entitled Meaningless, I'd simply like to talk to you about this subject. This can't be it, all right? This can't be it. Let's go to the Lord and let's ask a quick word of prayer upon the service tonight. Lord, pray that you'd be with us this evening. You'd be with me in a special way and that you'd give me uh, an extra dose of your blessing and your comfort, Lord, and your spirit tonight as I preach and as I expound upon the scriptures. Lord, I'm so thankful uh, for this particular passage. Some view it as a fatalistic passage and some view it as a discouraging passage, but I'm thankful it ends on a good note. And I'm thankful that uh, because of your precepts and because of your spirit, we're able to live a life of meaning and live a, a meaningful life, not a meaningless life. Lord, and anything, and I know that I'm getting ahead of myself even in this prayer, but anything uh, that is separate from living a life devoted to you and obedience to your word is meaningless. Lord, I pray that you'd help me tonight and that you'd fill me with your spirit. I'd appreciate it. Speak to hearts. Be with Pastor also. Even, even right now, I'm sure he's preaching or has begun preaching there at Foundation Baptist Church. You'd be with him. Fill him with your power and that everything we do tonight would be to your honor and your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for reading with me. Let me ask a question just by way of introduction. How many of you have ever experienced letdown in life? How many of you have ever experienced failed expectations? All right. Uh, this, and my mom is here, by the way. It's good to have my mom here from Houston. And mom might remember this trip, but I remember in my senior year, I believe it was, we went to New York. Did you go to that trip? Or was it just dad? Okay, it was me and my, my family went over to New York City. And you need to understand something about me. And I have my history teacher with me. History was not my subject. All right? I'm not a history buff. I'm not someone who's enamored with American history. And I know somebody in this room is offended just by that statement. I am a patriot and I love America. All right, Let's just get that out of the way. I love our country, but nonetheless, that doesn't interest me. I'm not interested in American history because I'm inter interested in other things. That's just how I'm, I'm geared. That's how I am. But nonetheless, I do appreciate American history. And I appreciate uh, what this country has gone through to make it what I believe the greatest country in the world. Man, I'll say that again. I believe that America is the greatest country in the world. The freedoms that we get to experience and everything that our, our nation is as a country, we're founded on Christian principles. I still believe that. In spite of what they might teach you in your public schools, I believe that this is a Christian nation, even still. And I believe that it was founded upon Christian principles. And so when we went to New York my senior year of high school, I can remember going to the National Archives Museum in Washington, D.C., and uh, we were there in New Jersey, got to visit Philadelphia, got to visit uh, uh, Arlington, we got to visit Baltimore and, and Washington, D.C. And although I'm not a big history buff, I am a tourist. 
just like anybody else, right? And if you're going to go to Washington, D.C., you got to visit the National Archives Museum. And what are we going to see at the National Archives Museum? What are we going to see? Come on. The Declaration of Independence. The Bill of Rights. I mean, all these, these, uh, these documents that mean so much to us and mean to, so much to us as a nation. And by the way, all these documents that are now under scrutiny. And all these documents that, again, all this time in our, in our culture and in our history, they've been accepted, but now all of a sudden they question it because it doesn't line up with the moral compass of our country anymore, by the way. But nonetheless, I'm a senior in high school. I'm not really a history buff, but I'm a tourist. You've got to go and you've got to visit the National Archives Museum, and you've got to visit uh, the National Archives Museum, and namely, you've got to see the Bill of Rights and the Declaration of Independence. And so, okay, let's go. We get in there, and I can remember there, there was a line, obviously, several people, and I, get, I can see it from afar off, and as we get closer, and closer and I approach it, uh, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but I'm just going to be honest. When I saw it, here's what I said. That's it? That's the Declaration of Independence? Uh, please don't take my, my, my American citizenship just because I said the Declaration of Independence, I'm talking about not what it stands for. It's just a piece of paper. Just a piece of paper with some faded writing. I said to myself, because, I mean, just being honest, I'm not a history buff or anything of that nature. That's the Declaration of Independence? I wasn't enamored by that. I can remember going over to Arlington. Went over to Arlington and got to visit the tomb of the unknown, un, unknown soldier. And uh, we planned it out where we were going to be able to see the changing of the guard. How many of you have ever seen that before? And I'm thinking, okay, that was a letdown, but this is going to be awesome. We're going to go and we're going to see the changing of the guard. And I'm going to have this inward feeling of just patriotism. And I'm going to get excited. And I'm going to be honest, when I saw the changing of the guard, I said, that's it. Surely this can't be it, and I'm just being honest, the guy was just marching back and forth, and uh, although it was very militant and it was very structured, I wasn't impressed. That can't be it. Uh, seriously, that's, that's not that impressive to me. Uh, I can remember this was years ago, years ago, whenever uh, we were, I, I was probably five or six years old, and I can remember going to Arizona, you remember that trip, Mom, and going on the missions trip, and uh, we visited uh, the, uh, the uh, Navajo Nations, and we were visiting uh, 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 some missionaries there, and everybody told us, if you're going to visit uh, the state of Arizona, you've got to go see Spider Rock. Now, a five-year-old, six-year-old young man who hears Spider Rock is thinking, a rock that looks like a spider. Anybody else with me? I feel like that makes sense. If it's going to be called Spider Rock, I better go and see this tarantula-looking rock and stone. And that's what I'm expecting to see. And I can remember us going, and I'm in the church van, and I'm like waiting. We're, we're pulling up. Okay, we're almost there. And we get to the parking lot, and we have to walk a couple of uh, yards to get to Spider Rock. And we go over to the canyon. I believe it's uh, De Chile Canyon. I don't remember. I don't remember the exact name of it. But I see Spider Rock. What a letdown. Just let me save you from the despair. When you go to Arizona, ignore Spider Rock because it's not that impressive. I mean, it really isn't. And I think that there's some history in it in regards to the, uh, the Navajo trends and the Navajo. Uh, 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 I, I don't remember the story, but I remember it had something to do with someone weaving a, spy, uh, a spider's, uh, uh, some sort of thing with a spider on it. I don't remember all there is to know, but all I know is I was disappointed. My expectations were not met. And you know why that is? I'm just a tourist. I go... Someone tells me to go somewhere, and I visit where they tell me to go. If someone tells me to visit New York City, what are they going to tell you to go see? See the Empire State Building or see the Statue of Liberty. When we're tourists, we just follow what was instructed to us by other people who have been there. But I'd have you believe that there's a difference, a vast difference between a tourist and a traveler. 
We've got some travelers in here, all right? Uh, Brother Marty and Miss Sharon, they're travelers. And man, I, I appreciate and love listening to their stories about visiting the Grand Canyon this past year. And uh, I definitely know the Gascoigne's uh, being retired. They, they travel all over and they are going with intention. They're traveling to see these great sights and sounds because they have a love for them. Am I right? I mean, I could name several others, the McTurnans and all these people that are travelers. I'm not a traveler. I'm just a tourist. I want to go and see what everybody tells me to see, and I probably won't be that impressed with it, and I want to get on with my life. But there's a difference. You understand what I'm saying? A difference between someone who's going to set out their journey, and they're going to make a long, a long uh, a trek or a long uh, journey, and they're going to set it up to be able to see all these great sights and sounds. There's a difference between that and just a tourist that goes and sees just these different little things that someone tells them to go and see. Difference between a tourist and a traveler. It was G.K. Chesterton that said this, The tourist only sees what he came to see and what others told him to see, whereas the traveler will always experience so much more on his journey. The traveler will always experience so much more on his journey. You know we're all on a journey? It's the journey of life. How many of you are on the journey of life right now? Every hand should be raised. We're all on the journey of life. How many of you life is going according to plan? On this tour, there are certain expectations and certain sights and stops that we're all trying to experience, all right? We all want to experience a childhood full of joy, laughter, and loving memories made with family and friends. How many of you would love to experience that, or you wanted to experience that, or you want your children to experience that? We all want to experience the, the days of our youth in excitement and enthusiasm. Going to get our first car when we're 16, get good grades so that we can get into the college that we want to go to. We get a good paying job and eventually move out of our parents' house. And every parent said, Amen. you ought to move out of your parents' house at some point, I believe, before you're 20 years old. I don't know. I didn't get a lot of feedback there. Okay. Move out of your parents' house. Get a good job. Uh, the first day that you step foot on the campus, by the way, you're the campus that you wanted to go to, the university that you desired to go to, you go to that very campus. And the first day, you meet your significant other. Very first day. You look across the campus. Maybe you're like me. You look across the campus, and you see that brown-haired, green-eyed girl coming down the campus, and you say, whoa, man, that's mine. That's my woman. I'm going to graduate with honors. Marry the same girl that I met on that first day that I just mentioned, and we're going to start a family together. I'm going to make tons of money. Tons of money, by the way, at the job that I love. I don't hate my job. I'm going to do, the job I'm going to get is the job that I love, that I desire to have, and every single day I'm going to wake up with great anticipation to go to the job that I just love. I'm going to buy my first house when I'm 30 years old. Buy my first house when I'm 30. See all my children grow up to be exemplary citizens in society and go on to make wonderful families of their own. And they're going to establish their own family institution. They'll raise their children, my grandchildren, by the way, in the same town that me and my wife reside in. All of my kids are going to be together. By the way, I'm 50 years old and I've retired now. I've retired by the time that I am 50. I live out my days fishing on the weekends with my grandkids, driving my dream car, and I don't even know what bridge is, but I play, play bridge on Tuesdays and Thursdays with my buddy, and I'm going to live out my days without a care in the world. My health, by the way, is impeccable. I never see cancer. I never see diabetes. I never have a heart attack. I never have a stroke in spite of all the Chick-fil-A that I'm going to eat. <laughs> I never have to experience any kind of health deficiency, and neither does my family. I'm going to die a peaceful death, surrounded by my friends and family and loved ones, leaving my family taken care of with all the money that they could ever ask for because I'm going to leave all the money that they need. How many of you would love to live that life? Again, how many of you are living that life? How many of you, everything in your life has gone according to plan? 
How many of you, as you have mapped out your life and you've looked at different stops along the way, everything has gone exactly as you anticipated? None of us. Truth be told, we've all come to points in our lives where we've had to scratch our heads and come to this conclusion. This can't be it. There has to be more than this. This did not meet my expectations. Ever been there? In the book of Ecclesiastes, we see a man, Solomon. In a very real sense, we could say that Solomon lived the dream. He lived the life. He was a man of renown. He was a man of great education. We're going to see tonight that he was a man of great wealth and reputation. He was a man who accomplished some great works. I believe he was one of the greatest kings in all of, uh, all of Israel. However, in spite of what it looked like from the outside, how is it then, knowing what we know about Solomon, he comes to the end of life, his life and what does he say? This can't be it. There's got to be more than this. This is not what I anticipated. Solomon is the penman of three books in our Bible, and we know them. And I'm not going to list them in chronological, or excuse me, I'm not going to list them in the order in which they appear in your, in your Bible, but I believe that this is the chronological order of the, of the writings of Solomon. The first would be the Song of Solomon. The Song of Solomon. He wrote this book in his early years as a young man full of zeal and passion. The intimate imagery that he uses to describe his love for his God is found in comparison between a, 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 the love that a young man would have for his new bride. It's beautiful how he writes the Song of Solomon. Second book he writes is the book of Proverbs. He wrote this book in the middle of his life, now being a man full of wisdom and understanding. He's been around the block and he's come to know some things. And we're going to find out how he came to know some things. He asks of God and God gives it to him, an understanding heart. And his profound wisdom exuberates through the book of, uh, the book of Proverbs. Again, the profound wisdom that exuberates through the beautiful poetic vocabulary accents so perfectly with the first book that he wrote. It's a wonderful book. But then we come to the book of Ecclesiastes, and it seems like such an anomaly. In knowing what we know about this man Solomon, it seems like such an anomaly that he would now write something that seems so contrary to what he had written before. When he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, he's now seemingly old and regretful. He's now seemingly uh, filled with regret. Having experienced all that he's experienced, now he reaches the end of his life, and he says, Vanity is vanity, all is vanities, saith the preacher. This can't be it. There's got to be more to life than this. So very simply tonight, and we're going we're gonna to expound upon each individual chapter as the weeks progress, but tonight I'd just like to build a case for you in regards to this man called Solomon. If we can understand a little bit about the man called, this man called Solomon, I think it will help us in the weeks and months to come as we progress through this series. And so very simply tonight, I'd like to look at three different things in regards to this man Solomon. If you're taking notes, I'd encourage you to take notes tonight. First thing I want you to write down is the saga of Solomon's life. The saga of Solomon's life. I want us to understand something about Solomon. In spite of the groundwork that I just laid, Solomon did not waste his life, all right? Solomon did not waste his life. He accomplished some great things for God. And I'm thankful for the series that Pastor's been preaching through the book of First Chronicles, uh, and uh, namely First uh, Chronicles 29, and the transition from King David to King Solomon. And uh, one of the reasons that Solomon uh, was able to establish himself as king uh, of the nation of Israel because he had a love for God. And he did some great things for God. He accomplished some great things for God. Again, I think he is one of the greatest kings in the history of the nation of Israel. And he starts off so great. Starts off on the right track. A couple things I want us to notice. Number one, I want you to notice his wisdom. His wisdom. First Kings chapter 3. Go there. We'll be there for the rest of the, the service tonight. First Kings chapter 3. Verse number 12. He says this. Behold, I have done according to thy words. Who's speaking now? God's speaking. 
God did something for Solomon that he never did for anybody else in history. Because of Solomon's love for God and because of the devotion of Solomon's father, King David, God looks at Solomon and he says this, because you love me, I'm giving you a blank check. Whatever you want, your wish is my command. You want great strength? I'll give, I'll give you great strength. You want to be a mighty warrior? I'll make you a mighty warrior. You want to be wealthy? I'll make you wealthy. Anything that you want, just name it, claim it. I will give it to you. I will establish you. I will give you exactly what you desire. What does Solomon ask for? He asks for wisdom. He asks for an understanding heart. I have given thee a wise and an understanding heart. So that there was none like thee before thee, neither after thee shall any arise like unto thee. Solomon asks for wisdom, and man, does God give him wisdom. Again, recognized as one of the wisest men in history. God gives him an enormous amount of wisdom, so much so that if you read later in this very passage, two women approach Solomon. Two women approach Solomon, and what do they do? They, they both claim that this baby is theirs. And Solomon does something so incredibly profound that I don't think anybody in this room would even envision doing. He says this, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to cut the baby in half. You'll get a half, you get a half. Like Oprah, everybody gets a half. No, I'm just kidding. He says, I'm going to cut the baby in half. And, and knowing, and because of his wisdom, knowing that the real mother is going to speak up and say, never mind, forget it. Just let her take the baby to look out for the well-being of her child. That's wisdom. That's smart. Solomon was so smart, in fact, that the queen of Sheba said, we cannot even begin to comprehend or understand just how wise this man Solomon is. Solomon is so wise, he could write a book about it. Did write a book about it. Writes the book of Proverbs. Solomon exuberates with wisdom, and God bestows the wisdom upon the life of Solomon. So that's the saga of Solomon in regards to his wisdom. The next thing I want you to notice is his wealth. Solomon was a man of great wealth. 1 Kings chapter 3 and verse number 13 God gives him wisdom, but then God goes a step further. He says, And I have also given thee that which thou hast not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall be any among, excuse me, so that not be any among the kings like unto thee all thy days. So Solomon asked for wisdom, and God says, I'm going to take it a step further. I'm not going to go give you, just give you wisdom. I'm going to give you wealth beyond measure, and I'm going to give you honor in your reign as king. To this day, Solomon is recognized as one of the richest men in history. If you were to Google it, uh, his name would appear as, some, as one of the most richest men in history. And at this current time, because the Word of God tells us in first, uh, 2 Kings chapter 17, that he gives him wisdom and no one else in their reign as king is ever going to have as much as Solomon in the days of Israel. So Solomon's one of the most wealthy men to ever live. God gives him wisdom and God gives him wealth beyond compare. But as Billy Mays would say, but wait, there's more. God gives him this, gives him a work. I want you to notice his works. Solomon was the king that God used to build his temple. And God would establish his temple through the reign of King Solomon. And then also, Solomon builds a pretty hefty mansion some 13 years after the establishment of God's temple. Solomon was, uh, excuse me, has peace during his 40-year reign as king. No other king in Israel's history was able to say that. Solomon's reign as king was like no other in that he didn't have any major catastrophes, any major wars, anything that he had to experience. He, he, he led a, a peaceful nation. He was the wisest man in history. He had more money than anyone could ever have need of. And on top of that, he has this list of credentials, all these works that he's able to do and all these works that he's able to accomplish. That's where he started. Great king over the nation of Israel, exuberates with wisdom, has a lot of wealth, and he does some incredible things for the nation of Israel. God uses him in an incredible way. So I want us to understand Solomon's life was not a waste, okay? By the way, your life doesn't have to be a waste either. Maybe you have a history of doing some great things and you've gotten off track or vice versa. You've gotten off track at the beginning of your life. At no point in your life is God done using you until you're done. 
So that's the saga of Solomon's life. Secondly, I want us to notice this, the squabbles of Solomon's life. What do you mean, the squabbles of Solomon's life? Solomon was a good king, but do you know that Solomon was a confrontational king? Solomon was filled with contention. He was filled with confrontation. He was filled with conflict. He was a man of adversity. How so? I want you to look at Deuteronomy chapter 17. You don't have to turn there. I believe it's going to be on the screen. But Deuteronomy chapter number 17, there's God speaking to the nation of Israel. And he's telling them, you don't pick a king that you want to pick based off of your criteria. You're going to pick the king that I want. And here's the criteria that I'm going to give you. Verse number 14, it says, When thou art come unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shalt possess it, and shalt dwell therein, and shalt say, I will set a king over me, like as all the nations that are about me, thou shalt in any wise set him king over thee, whom the Lord thy God shall choose. One from among thy brethren shalt thou set a king over thee. Thou mayest not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother. He gives him three things. All right, here we go. Verse number 16. But he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt. That's the first thing. Cause the people to return to Egypt to the end of the, uh, excuse me, to the end that he should multiply horses for as much as the Lord saith unto you, ye shall henceforth return no more that way. He's talking about going back to Egypt. Here's the second thing, verse 17. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that his heart turn not away. Then he gives the third thing. Neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver or gold. Silver and gold. So God tells the nation of Israel that their king is not to have any kind of a relationship with the nation of Egypt. Then he tells them that their king is not to multiply wives amongst himself. And then he says that their king is not to live in a continual pursuit of monetary gain and possession. Anybody know Solomon? How is Solomon measuring up so far? It's not looking so good for Solomon. I want us to notice a few things, and this is where the rubber's going to meet the road tonight. I want us to notice a few things about this, uh, the squabbles of Solomon. Number one, I want you to notice his scriptural disregard. His scriptural disregard. Again, Solomon is an educated man, and being David's son, he was raised in the kingdom, and he was raised to know and understand the law. He was raised to know and understand the scriptures. Matter of fact, I believe that if you were to ask Solomon as a young boy, he could recite large portions of scripture to you and begin to expound upon the very criteria that is listed in Deuteronomy chapter 17. Solomon knew it. He was an educated man and understood the law. So we know this. God said not to build a relationship with Egypt. So what does Solomon do? 1 Kings chapter 3, verse number 1. And Solomon made affinity with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had made an end of the building of his own house and the house of the Lord and the walls of Jerusalem round about. Hold on a second. That's not what God said to do. God was very specific and he was very clear. You are not to make relationships with the nation of Egypt. I brought you out of there. You were there 420 years. And because of my servant Moses, I brought you out of captivity in the, nation of, uh, in the land of Egypt. By the way, the land of Egypt is an Old Testament picture of what? The world. He called them out of Egypt and set them apart for his purpose. By the way, God's called us out of the world, which is why he does not have, want us to have a relationship with the world. And he gave them specific instructions. You're not to build relationships with them. What, what's, what's the harm in a relationship? Because you know what happens in a relationship? You are drawn towards something. He was very specific. He says, I don't want you to build a relationship with the nation of Israel. Anybody want, uh, excuse me, the nation of Egypt. Does anybody want to question the clarity that God laid out there? I mean, can we all admit, verbally admit with me, was God clear? Was he absolutely clear? However, towards the beginning of Solomon's reign, what does he do? He, he brings to wife Pharaoh's very daughter. 
I mean, I, I could understand. I couldn't understand it'd still be sin, but I could still understand if he made maybe a trade deal with them. I could understand if maybe he made a professional relationship with them, but he goes as far as to build a family relationship with Pharaoh himself and marries one of his daughters. Where God was clear, Solomon disregards Scripture. Where God was abundantly clear, there was not an ounce of ambiguity about it, Solomon disregards the commandments of God. Not only that, I want you to notice his spiritual distance. His spiritual distance, you have his scriptural disregard and then you have his spiritual distance. Look at 1 Kings chapter 3, verse number 2. It says, only the people sacrificed in the high places because there was no house built unto the name of the Lord until, uh, until those days. Look at verse 3. And Solomon loved the Lord. Hold on a second. Great testimony. And Solomon loved the Lord. How many of you want to have that testimony? How many of you want to be known as somebody that loves the Lord? That's a great testimony to, to long for and to strive for. Solomon loved the Lord. I want you to look at 1 Kings chapter 11 now. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse number 1, it says this, But King Solomon loved many strange women. We're off to a different start, aren't we? But King Solomon loved many strange women, together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, uh, excuse me, Edomites, Zodian, uh, the, the Zidonians, and the Hittites. What happened? He goes from 1 Kings chapter 3, loving God, to 1 Kings chapter 11, loving many strange women. Let me tell you what happened. Here it is. Because Solomon disregarded the scripture, it led to spiritual distance between him and God. Why? If you get anything, get this. Because you cannot say that you love the Lord and disregard his word. It's almost like we just heard a message on that this morning. You cannot love God. You cannot say, I love the Lord and disregard His Word. Mark it down. When you begin to, listen, when you begin to disregard the Word of God, your love will change. Maybe you're here tonight and you say, I love the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I'm living in devotion to Him. Hey, let me tell you, whatever you're pursuing after, your love will change. If you're pursuing after anything but a relationship with God and a devotion to His Word, your love will change. This led to a spiritual distance in the life of Solomon, but it also led to this, his social disruption. His social disruptions. Uh, same, same chapter in verse number 14 of uh, 1 Kings chapter 11, it says, And the Lord stirred up an adversary unto Solomon, Hadad, the Edomite. He was uh, of the king's seed in Edom. So this is, this is where the ramifications of his sin comes into play. This is when he begins to pay for his disregard for the word of God and his disregard for scripture. That caused him to be spiritually distant from his heavenly father. Now he begins to suffer again the ramifications of his sin. God raises up Hadad, the Edomite. And that's not the only adversary that God raised up. Check this out. I don't want to get ahead of myself. We'll end with this. But Solomon brings to wife 700 wives and 300 concubines. Talk about multiplying wives. Matter of fact, I believe, according to history, he's one of the many men in history who have over, there's only a handful, have over 500 wives. Solomon had almost 1,000. You know what we're going to see here in just a minute? We're going to see that those very wives and some of the offspring of Solomon's relationships that he has with all these women are the very people who rise up against him and cause him to turn away his heart from God. It gets worse. This leads to his sad destruction. 
1 Kings chapter 11 and verse 11, it says, Wherefore the Lord said unto Solomon, Forasmuch as this is done of thee, and thou hast not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded thee, I will surely rend thee the kingdom from thee, and will give it to thy servant. Notwithstanding in the days I will not do it for David thy father's sake, but I will rend it out of the hand of thy son. God tells Solomon that because of his disregard for the scripture, he's going to split the nation of Israel in half. And he tells him that because of the faithfulness of his father David, I'm not going to do it in your reign, but mark it down whenever you pass from the scene. Your sons Jeroboam and Rehoboam, they're going to experience discord amongst the nation of Israel, and I'm going to split them in two. And that's exactly what God does. Jeroboam went to the north with the ten tribes, with, uh, excuse me, while Rehoboam went to the south with the tribes of Benjamin and the tribes of Judah. The Word of God tells us that the northern kingdom is taken into captivity some 500 years later, and just 94 years after that, the southern kingdom finds themselves in captivity. Uh, and all of us know that. All of us who are students of the Word of God know exactly how it plays out. But what I want to draw your attention to, whose fault was it? Because of the disregard of Scripture, Solomon started it. And because of Solomon's disregard for the Word of God, he didn't necessarily feel all the ramifications of his sin, but his children did. Their children did. Their children did. Can I tell you something tonight? Our disregard for the word of God, we will not begin to feel the impact of it, but our gen the next generation after us will. There's going to come a time when we're going to pass from the scene, and if we are flippant with the word of God, mark it down, our children will suffer the ramifications. We're living in that th this very day. I preached just a couple of weeks ago on the King Uzziah. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. King Uzziah disregarded scripture too. God gave specific commands and he says, you're not to go into the temple. You're not a priest, you're a king. And what does he do? He takes liberties upon himself that did not belong to him. But you know who had to suffer the ramifications of that decision? Not just him, his son. That led to apathy in the life of his son. And then after that, you have King Ahaz, one of the most wicked kings in, uh, in history. And he had complete apostasy, completely rejecting all the teachings of God. Who started that? Uzziah. Who started this in the nation of Israel? Solomon. Where did it start? Disregard for the word of God. Disregard for scripture. We see the saga of Solomon's life and then we see the squabbles of Solomon's life. Lastly, very quickly, I want us to see this. Number three, the summary of what Solomon learned. Or did he? The summary of what Solomon learned. Or did he? By the time you come to the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon has learned a few things, hasn't he? I mean, he, he has learned some things. There's some things that he's learned along the way. There's some things that he has to offer us, and we're going to learn about them uh, over the next couple of weeks. But Solomon has learned a lesson or two. And it boils down to two things, and I love it. And it's very practical, and it's very simple. Here's the first thing that he learns. Life without God at the center is meaningless. Life without God at the very center is meaningless. Again, Solomon had it all. He was a man of renown. He was a man who had all possessions that anybody could want, had all the money that anybody could want, had all the wisdom that anybody could want. He had all that life had to offer. He made all the stops along the journey of life that any journeyman would want to have. He's experienced a life well lived. And what does he have to say about it? Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? You know what he's saying? Listen to me. You know what he's saying? Life is meaningless, life is purposeless. Solomon is saying this, a man of great wisdom and wealth, a man who's done a lot of great works, comes to the conclusion that any life, any life lived apart from having God at its center is meaningless and worthless. 
learns a second lesson, and he summarizes it this way. In just simple contrast to the first lesson. Number two, he learns this. Life with God at the center is meaningful. Life with God at the center is meaningful. It's full of joy. It's, it's full of glad-heartedness. Look, uh, skip down to verse number 13 of, uh, excuse me, skip down to the last chapter. By the way, there's no cliffhangers in this series. I want you to understand where we're going, all right? Go to uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, the second to last verse in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse number 13. Here's what Solomon says. He says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Here it is. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. You know what Solomon is saying? Here, here, here's what he's saying. The meaning of life can be found in a healthy fear of God. Resting in complete obedience and compliance to his word. Solomon, again, the wisest man to le ever live, wealth beyond measure, and a man of extraordinary works, came to the conclusion that I have it all, but I have nothing if Jesus, or excuse me, God is not at the center of my life. My life is meaningless and my life is worthless. Solomon understood at the end of his life the difference between living a life that was meaningless and living a life that was meaningful, and it's found in one simple word, God. Do you hear me? It's found in one simple word, God. It's found in one simple statement, devotion to God's word. I believe wholeheartedly that if we were to take uh, Solomon and to give him a hearing on what he would have us know and understand about his life, I believe he would not take us to the book of Song of Solomon. I don't think he'd take us to Song of Solomon and talk about zeal, talk about passion, and talk about loving God. I don't believe he'd take us to the book of Proverbs and talk about having wisdom and understanding. I believe he'd take us to Ecclesiastes and he'd say this. If you get anything from my life, get this. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. I believe that's what he'd say. Why do you say that, Lamorne? Why, why, why do you think of all, all the things that Solomon has, has written, or again, being a wise man? Why would he have us understand and know that? Because even though Solomon wrote it, Solomon didn't believe it. Even though Solomon is the one who penned that very phrase, fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, we're going to find that at the end of his life, Solomon didn't even adhere to his own, command, Solomon didn't even adhere to his own wisdom. 1 Kings chapter 3 and verse number 4, you don't have to go there, it says, For it came to pass, when Solomon was old, that his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not perfect, excuse me, his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, and was the heart of, uh, as was the heart of, his, uh, of David his father. For Solomon went after Asheroth, the goddess of the Zodian, uh, excuse me, the Zidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And Solomon did evil, look at that, and Solomon did evil, in the sight of the Lord, and went not fully after God, as did David his father. And you skip down to verse number 41, and that's the end of Solomon's life. It says, And the rest of the acts of Solomon, and all that he did, and his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the Acts of Solomon? In the time, excuse me, and the time that Solomon re, uh, reigned in uh, Jerusalem over the all, was, uh, all Israel was forty years, and Solomon slept with his fathers, and was buried in the city of David his father. And Rehoboam, his son, began to reign in his stead. The sad reality is that at the end of Solomon's life, with all the wisdom that anybody could ask for, again, being the wisest man to ever live, he dies neglecting his own advice and counsel. So uh, I'm going to close the service tonight by just simply encouraging you. I want you to be a part of this series. I want you to be a part of this series, and I want you to come every single Sunday night as we unpack and we unfold the book of Ecclesiastes, because there's some things that I want us to know and things that I want us to derive from the life of Solomon and the end of, of the life of Solomon, the book of Ecclesiastes. A lot of people view it as a very fatalistic pa passage, but we see it's going to end on a good note. 
And we know and understand, as I led with, we are all on the journeys of life and we're all experiencing things. And some of us, our expectations are not being met. And some of us are reaching the point where we're actually saying this, this can't be it. And I believe full and well that there are people in here who are, who are experiencing discouragement and even depression. You say, Lamar, a Christian shouldn't be depressed. I believe that a Christian shouldn't be depressed. You're right. And I'm not, gonna, I'm not talking about clinical depression. I'm talking about situational depression where because of your situations and your circumstances, it beca- it becomes, uh, you become despairing and you become discouraged. I, I, how many of you are human in this room? How many of you have ever been in the valley of despair because life is not going according to plan? How many of you have ever, just be honest, you've come to that point where you say, this can't be it. There's got to be more than this. There's three things that I hope that we'll understand as we end this, as we end this series, and it's going to be very simple, but I hope it'll be very profound and it'll, it'll help us understand some things. Here's what Solomon is trying to get at. We're to fear God. We're to have a healthy fear of God, and we're going to talk a little bit about what that looks like. We're to have a healthy, a healthy fear of God, but then also this, we're to keep His commandments. I love the message that Pastor preached this morning, but again, you cannot love God and deny the Word of God. You cannot love God and not be completely in love with His Word and completely in complete obedience to His Word. Love, fear God, love, uh, excuse me, keep His commandments, find meaning. Find meaning. How many of you want to live a meaningful life? I'd encourage you to be a part of this series as we unfold and we uh, uh, unpack the book of Ecclesiastes. And I think it'll be a blessing and a, a help. Here's how I came about this series. And we're, we're done. Here's how I came about this series. As I was praying and I was seeking God, I, I was looking at a number of different things uh, that, uh, that uh, I could expound upon. And I had some different preferences in regards to a, mess, or a series that I could preach. And the Lord brought me back to this passage because of something that a good friend of mine is going through. And again, all of us at one time or another have experienced great depression. What does the Bible have to say about it? And so here's my encouragement to you. If you've never been in that position, gear up because you might be coming into that position at some time. But maybe you know somebody who's experienced depression. They've experienced depression or they're experiencing depression. I'd encourage you to come and be a part of this series as we expound. But no cliffhangers. Here's where we're going to conclude. We need to have a healthy fear of God. We need to keep His commandments. That's how we find meaning. So I'd encourage you to be a part. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and we'll be dismissed. Lord, I pray that you'd be with us.